If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Talk of other universes has become fashionable amongst physicists and apparently also amongst you, given your book sales. This week, our speakers go looking for the meaning of the multiverse. Should we recognise that ours is actually the only universe and give up on the others as just some kind of fantasy science? Or is the idea of slipping through a wormhole into another universe actually credible rather than just a Hollywood fairy tale? What then would the ramifications of this Hollywood fairy tale be? From theism to dark matter and string theory to metaphysics, we find out what, how and why the multiverse might exist. Taking this on, we have Harvard string theorist and winner of the prestigious Dirac Medal, Kaman Vaffer, professor of religion at Wesleyan University, and author of Pantheology's God's Worlds and Monsters, MJ Rubenstein, and Maxwell Prize-winning theoretical physicist and researcher at CERN and King's College London, John Ellis. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you're looking for more at the end of this week's podcast, then why not head over to our podcast page for a great new selection of podcast playlists, all available at iai.tv on our podcast page. Back now to David Malone, who hosts this week's episode. Can we start with you, Cameron? Um, is ours the only universe? Please, in four minutes. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, David. As, uh, as David mentioned, my area is string theory. It's an area where uh, we try to understand the fundamental uh, laws of physics. Uh, what is everything made of and what are the forces between particles and what is the unification of particles and what, is, what are all these ideas come together. So there's a framework very mathematical where many of these ideas seem to fit beautifully and that's in the context of replacing objects which are point particles instead of point particles being fundamental entities, extended objects like strings, one-dimensional and even higher-dimensional ones like membranes, being the fundamental entities instead. And that turns out to be important in trying to reconcile Einstein's theory of general relativity with quantum mechanics. And it has led to a number of predictions, including predictions that people had expected. For example, Hawking's uh, predictions about black holes, which were hinted at, but was not quite fully realized until string theory predicted exactly the numbers and formulas that Hawking was getting in terms of properties of black holes. So there are many aspects of this theory which theoretically have been, have been, uh, have been checked out. This theory predicts not just one universe, but 
in fact, an infinite number of universes, 10 to the 500 is an underestimation. Um, <laughs> so, 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 of course, the, ten to the, the popular 10 to the 500 number comes when you try to restrict a specific type of universe in four dimensions maybe, and maybe with properties similar to ours, and within that context there may be this many. People have tried to estimate, I'm not sure how accurate that number may or may not be by, by colleagues who make such estimates, but at any rate, infinite or at least a huge number of possibilities in this theory is predicted, that's for sure. And we have seen within string theory that there are many possible choices which more or less resembles what we see in terms of the forces and particles and things that we expect in our universe. So it's very natural to expect that that would, that would potentially work the way we think. But to actually pinpoint which, which one we live in and to make exact predictions is very difficult given the multitude of possibilities. So we are not there yet in terms of predicting exactly which one we are. And the hope is by finding some general properties about all of them, perhaps we can say some general lessons from any would-be universe. And one of them, of course, being ours, we would be able to deduce some facts about our universe as a result. And that's basically the area I'm working in myself. So I think a small good. area. Small area. <laughs> Marvelous. <laughs> Mary Jane. <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, I, my training is in philosophy and the history of religion and science. So uh, delightfully, I'll let the physicists sort of duke it out on their terrain and try to hover a little bit. Um, but I will, I'd like to weigh in quickly to say that epistemologically, that is in terms of what we can know, uh, it seems to me that the multiverse that's a pretty good bet is uninteresting. And the multiverse that's interesting is a really kind of weird bet. So here's what I mean. Thanks to the inflation that seems to have taken hold just after the Big Bang, there's almost certainly a lot of space time beyond the 40 billion, year light, billion light year in radius sphere that we call our visible universe, right? There seems to be more stuff out there. That space time is likely filled with stuff, galaxies, planets, and stars. So we could call those far flung universes uh, within our Big Bang event, but beyond our vision, we could call them other universes if we wanted to. But they'd be no different in principle or in basic composition from our own. Uh, so again, they're not all that Interesting. The exciting multiverses are the ones that give us uh, different fundamental constants of nature, different values for gravity, the mass of the electron, the cosmological constant. So I'm thinking here of the infinite bubble universes of eternal inflation, uh, baby universes in black holes, the 10 to the 500 or infinite uh, compactifications of 11-dimensional uh, space. The idea that everybody loves to hate, for example, also, that the universe could be two membranes smashing together every once in a while and recreating themselves. Nobody likes that idea, but it's out there. Um, these are really cool multiverses, uh, but they, I think affirming their existence requires at least one of two major epistemological leaps that are a problem. One. The first is that the laws of physics that we've derived from our comparatively minuscule visible universe, say quantum field theory, and even our hypotheses about this universe, like inflation, the idea that those processes have to hold beyond, before, outside our Big Bang to account for absolutely everything, that we can take this little bit that we've observed and apply it to something that we can never see. Uh, this is difficult. How would we ever know this? Um, the second assumption would be that mathematical convenience or mathematical elegance somehow imposes the necessity of physical law on us, that because of the mathematics of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, for example, because the mathematics works out, then that means necessarily that 
the universe has just split into one universe where half of this room just got up and left and got some coffee and then the other, right? It may work mathematically. It doesn't necessarily mean that this imposes a physical reality on us. So insofar as the interesting multiverses are a kind of wonky bet and the good bet multiverse is a kind of uninteresting thing. I think the more productive question is, uh, what do we want from a multiverse? Why are we so excited about it? Why are we so interested in it? I think for, certainly for, say, science fiction, what we want is a livable universe, like a better universe, a more inter a, a, you know, a universe of justice or a universe of peace or a universe of lots of different ways to answer this question. For the ancient atomists in Greece, what they wanted was a way to understand our universe without having recourse to God, and I think that that's what's going on in modern physics. Ooh. But I'll get there. <laughs> <clears throat> it's left the ringer right for the end there. John. <laughs> Is, uh, is ours the only universe? When I uh, started graduate school, my professor asked me uh, whether, what sort of thing I wanted to work on. And uh, so one of the options was, was symmetries, relating all sorts of uh, different properties of different particles. You know, think relativity, think, well, anyway, that's, that's basic building block of our theories. Uh, and string theory is you know, the you know, epitome of, of symmetry. And then he asked me a second question. He said, well, do you want to work on the mathematics of symmetries? Or do you want to work on the applications of symmetries to actual phenomena? And I said, applications. And that's basically you know, where I started from, and that's where I continue to go. I'm interested in, in theories that can be tested practically. And uh, so I've, for a long time, been involved in uh, Accelerator, based experiments. Now I'm interested, for example, in uh, probing general relativity using gravitational waves. So where does this put me with this multiverse debate? So I, I guess that basically I'm not so very much interested in the interesting multiverse, which is like was your description. I'm more interested in the boring multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> because, because that's something which uh, I think is potentially open to test. I think one very important point to mention is that the laws of physics that we uh, have established in our laboratory experiments, we know that they work to an incredible accuracy out to the most distant stars that we can see in our universe. The atoms in those very distant stars behave in exactly the same way as atoms uh, in the laboratory. But I think it would be very interesting to, to, to carry those experiments even further and maybe look for small deviations that might be indicative of one of the options that you mentioned, the idea that beyond the visible universe that we can see, there are you know, other pieces of the universe created in the same uh, Big Bang. So that sort of thing I find interesting. Cumron's 10 to the 500 or 10 to the whatever it is, I don't find so interesting because I don't know how to test them. Well, well that's what we'll get to now then. I suppose the first question is, well, should we give up looking for other universes? I mean, theoretically, there's lots of reasons why we could continue looking for them. But as someone who just likes stuff that you can measure, John, should we give up looking for other universes, or is it still a fruitful thing to do for science? Well, I absolutely think that we, that we should look for such things. And uh, I think now is the point maybe to introduce a, a very interesting line of argument that Cumran has introduced over the last few years. Mm -hmm. 
So, so these 10 to the 500 or whatever it is, universe. 10 to the infinity, apparently. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a few uh, so, so string theorists call this the landscape. Yeah. And Kuhlman has made the very important point that there are some properties of physical laws of, the, of universes that do not fit in the landscape. And I think it's very interesting to, to push on that and see, for example, whether our universe fits within this landscape or not, or whether instead it lies in what Kumran picturesquely called the swampland. Okay, let's ask him. So uh, I think the <laughs> point that John is making is that there are not everything you can get from string theory. The infinity uh, might mislead us to think, well, whatever you want goes. Just just pick your universe. You're fine. Well, infinity is well, a big number. Exactly. <laughs> because not only 10 to the 500 is big, infinity is even bigger. <laughs> so why not? You can get anything. Who cares about string theory? You can have anything you want, and just anything goes. Not so fast, it turns out. For example, in our universe, gravity is the weakest force. If you have, for example, two electrons, next to each other, their electric repulsion is far stronger than their gravitational attraction. Well, that's a feature of our universe. Do all the universes, that tends to 500 or infinity, what we're talking about, they all have this property? It turns out, yes. It turns out those, are those properties, like gravity being the weakest force, seems to be the case in all the cases that we can construct in the context of solutions to string theory. So we think that's a general feature. What are general features that all of these have, and therefore, if we believe in string theory as I do, our universe should also have those. So that would be then predictions about our universe coming from string theory, even though we don't, we cannot pinpoint which one of these universes is exactly our universe. So that we very predictive. So the things that look okay, like yeah, gravity may not be the weakest force, I would call they belong to the swampland. They don't really exist. We could contemplate them as would-be universes, but not a real universe. And so presumably our universe, which is real, would not belong to the swamp. Well, well to real to according to string theory. Sorry? I'm talking about string ah, theory. Ah, yes, that's, about, that's the problem I'm talking about. I'm talking about people like myself who believe in, in, uh, in the thing that string theory has already taught us to have connections with reality. Correct. I, I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but that sounds quite like the anthropic principle. Uh, anthropic principle, which we can, I can probably... No, no, let's not go. I just wanted to check. No, not exactly there. Anthropic okay, principle good. is trying to say that uh, we, live in, we live in this universe, the universe is the way it is because we live in it, roughly. Uh, that's, not what I, that's not what I'm advocating okay. at all. So, right. I, in fact, I'm myself on defense about uh, anthropics. I'm not... You're in I the swampland. Uh, no, no, no. Anthropics, <laughs> anthropics, I think, may be helpful to clarify what that distinction is because some people, I think, misunderstand the statement here. Yeah. Anthropics has nothing to do, per se, with the landscape. String landscape exists. How you use it, you can use different ways, and some people have tried to use it one way or the other. I may or may not agree with the uses of that terminology by some colleagues even, but that's not the case. That's not the, the statement about the string theory as a mathematically well-defined formalism tells you that there are these consistent, mathematically consistent solutions. Now, I think I, I take issue with the fact that mathematics is not interesting. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> mathematics, whatever it gives us, great, who cares? We have our universe, who cares? I think we have learned amazingly simple ideas of math and mathematical consistency lead us a huge distance the future. For example, example is Maxwell. Maxwell was looking at his equation of electricity and magnetism. It wasn't working out because math wasn't working out. He just added the term in his equations out of just mathematical consistency, and then he found a strange thing. He found electric and magnetic waves move. The fields move with the speed close to the speed of light that they thought that way. And he said, oh, wait, maybe light is electromagnetic waves moving just because of math. 
<laughs> just because of that math. So, that, so that, I think that underestimating the importance of math is like okay, that's what I would call an application of the, of the symmetry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mary Jane, because we're, right. we're getting... Let me head back to the question and then hover a bit. Right? Yes. So the question is, so should we math. give up on the search for other universes? It seems to me that if we're talking about physicists, they're moving in two different directions with the search for other universes. Some, like Qumran, are asking, what are the possible parameters of configurations that universes can take on, and what is the likelihood that we're going to get a universe like ours? This is a modal question. This is a question of possible universes, and then the likelihood of ours being, which isn't making an ontological claim about the existence of all, the actual physical existence of all of those other universes. It's possible configurations, if I understand you. No, not, not, so I'm trying to clarify. Some yeah. people in my, my community I think yes. the way you said, not, not all. I That's don't right. agree with that. Right. So in other words, there are groups who try to use it as a probabilistic statement of which one we live in. That so I don't take as such. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Good. I think the, the main thing I view as landscape mm -hmm. is the existence of consistent mathematical framework, right. which give you universes which are mathematically well-defined, mm -hmm. and presumably, as we believe, one of, it is, uh, one of them is our universe. Which not, right. not that it's going to predict what probability we live in. Right. Okay. Which is a different, I think, project from, say, physicists like uh, Laura Mersini Houghton, uh, like Roger Penrose, who are scrutinizing the cosmic microwave background to be like, are there, is there evidence here of other universes? Like, can we see here that maybe universes, Penrose, collided, or like there were these whacking big black holes, he says, that, that have other universes in them? Like, can, can you find that from the CMB, Laura Mersini Houghton? Uh, can you detect there the existence of some primordial multiversal bath out of which universes arise? That's a different, that's a, that's a different project, right? That's, so the question is, are we thinking about a multiverse as a kind of useful tool to help us understand this world? Or are we looking at this world in order to say, are there other worlds out there, right? That pro so I think it's important first to make that distinction, and then second to say, I think it's totally fascinating. I'm thrilled that people are, <laughs> right, that they're doing this, that they're asking these questions. I just don't know that we're ever going to come to uh, any kind of certainty as to whether any of them exists. Yeah, could, could I just interject something? Yeah, please do, yes. I, I think as long as it's helpful. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll shut up. <laughs> no, I, I think it's fantastic progress that we're talking about, you know, maybe 10 to the 500 or maybe some bigger number of, of possible universes. Because, you know, if I, if I think back 50 years, we were just developing you know, another theory of fundamental interactions, gauge theories, okay? And there, we wouldn't ever discuss this. It was just not a question that we could you know, have a debate about. Mm -hmm. So I think it's tremendous progress that we've got to 10 to the 500. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I would like to throw a, a, a stone in, in Kumran's direction. <laughs> Astronomers, cosmologists looking at the universe tell us that it's expanding and that that expansion looks like it's accelerating. Hmm. And this seems to be extremely difficult to uh, fit within our current understanding of string theory. I, I, I wouldn't say that. Why would you say that? <laughs> because a lot of your colleagues say it. <laughs> Which colleagues say it? Oh, no, no, no we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're giving the benefit of the doubt. You can hunt them down later. No, I think, I think some people have said, I say that, which I'm trying to call No, no, we, we, we got yes. that. You didn't say that. No, I, I, I far be it for me to accuse you of saying it. That, 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 that string theory is in conflict. So, 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 so let me ask you a question. What is going to happen to the universe in the future? Well, it's an exciting one, but actually it's not a very happy ending, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you've got the answer. It's not a happy ending. I just think maybe it's worth pointing out that when they talk about proof, Cumberland saying we know these things because it springs out of the mathematics. In other words, you look at the mathematics and say, look, it shows that this is going to exist or that's going to exist. And mathematics does have a good track record 
I mean, Dirac came up with antimatter simply because he stayed up really late one night, had a lot of coffee, worked out the equation, and said, this doesn't work unless I add this in. He added it in, and it was about five years later, someone said, hey, we've just discovered antimatter. Whereas John, being the practical soul he is, just chafes with you, doesn't it? He wants to say, well, can I measure it? Can I find it? Is it in a bottle? Well, uh, <laughs> go on, John. Uh, of course, the, the thing that you know, inspires me most is you know, like this example that uh, Kumlan mentioned of Maxwell, when you know, he looks at the mathematics and he's able to make a prediction which turns out to be correct. Yeah. Right? I mean, one of the greatest eureka moments in physics must have been when Maxwell calculated the speed of light, assuming that it was waves of electromagnetism, and he got the right answer. It, was, you know, it must have been absolutely uh, incredible. And that's very, very satisfying if you, uh, you know, have that experience. So th th there was a time when it was fashionable to call string theory a theory of everything. And you know, that's no longer a fashionable terminology. So I, I feel justified in claiming credit for popularizing that to some extent. There was an article I wrote, Theory of Everything or of Nothing. And I think one of the criticisms that people have made of string theory is that it doesn't make you know, these predictions that you can really test. Yeah. And one of the things that I really you know, like about what Kumran has been doing recently with this swampland ideas is that this tells you, you know, a bunch of things which if those turn out to be true, tell you that string theory is wrong. So, yeah. Okay. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports, and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, let's. Why then has the ultimate multiverse? gained in popularity and why now do you reckon? Why do I think it's gained yeah, in popularity now? Yeah, because it's not just scientific, is it? No, it's not just scientific. Um, and of course, so again, sorry, I, I forgive the historical move that I always want to do, but um, the, the first um, real sort of respectable vision of the multiverse in physics came out of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics in the 1950s. Um, and then in the 1980s, um, Andre Linde, Alex Vilenkin started positing uh, eternal and chaotic inflation. Right, so these ideas were around, uh, but we, the, the multiverse starts exploding around the turn of the millennium. I mean, there's a, suddenly it's on bookstores, it's in, it's in it's whatever we, bookstores are now, it's you know, the early internet, it's right. Absolutely everybody talking about the multiverse. Um, I think within physics, it seems that part of, we do, I think, have to talk about the anthropic principle. I think part of the um, impetus came from the discovery of dark energy in 1998 and the uh, intensification of the perceived fine-tuning problem. The idea that it seems like the universe is so perfectly calibrated that if, if gravity were any different, if everything were any stronger, maybe the universe would collapse into a big crunch, or if the cosmological constant were any stronger, it would blow apart. Right? How is it possible that everything is just right, that we can get galaxies and planets and stars and Donovan and whatever else that we get? Um, and, uh, Nothing's perfect. So, so Steven Weinberg begins to say in 2000, 2001, look, I think that this 
fine-tuning problem is going to force the idea of the multiverse on yeah. it. And suddenly, Alex Belenkin's phone is ringing, and Andre Linde's phone is ringing, and you know they're like ringing up Hugh Everett from the dead and being like, "Sorry, dudes, maybe your idea was right." Um, right? Because we have this intensified fine-tuning problem, which, again, from my perspective, the problem is that it keeps nudging physics closer to theologians who are like, "Ah, we have a fine-tuned universe. We got an answer for that. It's our dude. It's our guy. We've been talking about this guy." Or yeah. girl, of right. maybe. So this is right. Well, it's either that or an infinity of universes. Or so. an infinite, right? That's your that's your choice. And this is what this is this is. If you don't want God, you'd better have a multiverse. That's right. So thing. I think that you are mentioning Mary Jane. I think is is a by group in our in our community. And to make it as a general statement, it's not quite valid. And what he was referring to is the point that I have been making in the past few years is that that idea may not be correct. So, but that does not talk about the general general framework not being correct. It's just the way people are using it may be incorrect. So I think. The idea that the, the fine-tuning problems in physics, whether or not they are related to entropic principle or they are related to deeper principles, we have to learn. We have to study them on the sun. People have put forth the idea that some aspects may be related to aspects that we exist. And therefore, yeah, there, we, we, won't, we won't be existing on outer space. We exist on planets. That's not a crazy idea. You know, there's gravity. You get stuck there. And so, so that could be similar to some aspects, not everything. And if everything is trying to ex be explained, the, all the fine tunings based on our existence sounds a little strange. Many people in my field don't like that, and I don't think I'm. I would. I would myself not like it. I would find it as a last resort to go in that direction. That's and what most people are. Say. People are looking for alternatives, including myself. I've written papers that he's referring to, trying to ad advance other alternatives to that question. But is, is it? Do you, from your point of view, was the the increase in in interest in the multiverse? forced on you or as a result of trying to deal with the fine tunings? So, so, so it was kind of relation. Before Weinberg's and before the measuring of the dark energy, mm. the fact that there are infinitely many solutions in string theory was not. That was, not, that was independent of that. Right. Right. Weinberg, when he was giving his ideas about anthropics, he used string theory as, look, we need such a thing in order to explain why Kalmarsh constant is zero, close to zero. And he said there must be a very large number of solutions. String theorists tell there are great. So that's the starting point. Now, then he went, and then a few years later, the people d discovered dark energy, and people in string theory said, great, you know, we, we, we were okay, but we now have to explain exactly why we have this actual value that we are seeing, and so people try to construct solutions, and then there's still debate, and that's part of what people in my community, including myself, have raised recently, have they constructed the solutions that Weinberg wants? Or whether, more interestingly, is the dark energy changing in time, and if there's such, is it observable, and can we measure it, be as a prediction of string theory? So, so it'd be very, very concrete predictions of that idea of the landscape of string theory. So the idea that string theory or landscape exists, who cares, we cannot measure it, there's no irrelevance for us, we're only one of these universes, not so fast. Because if we find general patterns of them, for all of them, and if ours is one of them, therefore we make specific predictions about our universe. Right. And you cut down understanding the number. That, understanding what properties our universe has could be a very specific one. And we can check it, and that would be very, very specific. When you say you can check it, what does he mean by that? Because you can't check it by twiddling a dial at CERN, can you? Well, no, but... It's I mean, a different kind of checking. But, but Cromwell specifically mentioned the idea that the dark energy, you know, the energy in empty space that uh, corresponds perhaps to what Einstein called the cosmological constant you know, right. back in the day, might actually <laughs> not be constant, and it might actually be right. varying. And I, my understanding of string theory is that that's a, a very... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether I should call it a prediction of string theory, but it's an expectation voiced by many string theorists. Right. And, and that's something which you know, one could, in principle, test using telescopes and other aspects. Ah, okay. So there's, there's, there's employment for you in the future as well? 
not just mathematicians. You get <laughs> yes. to measure something. <laughs> yes, Excellent. It's measurable. I mean, I don't, it's worth mentioning when they go on about dark energy and dark matter, that's the 95%, 95? Of the universe, which, 96%, uh, which went missing. Um, this room is, 95% of this room is in fact stuffed with it. Um, uh, well, actually. Apparently. What, what, allegedly. Not this room, because we live on a planet with a large concentration of matter. Ah, but yes. if you average over the whole yeah. universe, yeah. it's. Yeah. So it, we're not choking in it just here. No. Well, but it is true that there's, you know, for example, particles of dark matter you know, skimming through that bottle of water there, bars of water there all the time. And you heard it here first. Um, but but could I come back to one of your previous questions? Yes. So you asked, you know, why are people so interested in the multiverse? Mm. So I, I think we've had a discussion about why physicists, why scientists are so interested in the multiverse. And I think you have a particular perspective on it as well with your you know, background in history of religion and so on and so forth. Interesting question is, why is the general population interested in these ideas about the multiverse? Be careful, because they're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we should ask you guys. Is it maybe because you're not so happy with the universe that we live in? Is it because when you, you know, listen to the news, you get the impression that people out there who inhabit a completely different universe <laughs> for, for, from the one that uh, you live in? I, I, I think, though, know, if, if you like, this fertile sociological uh, hmm. ground for the um, uh, metastasis of these ideas into the general public consciousness. Ooh. Um, I think we'll move on then, uh, now that we've mentioned <laughs> me metastasis. Cumran, well, actually, no, let's, let's, let's ask you. I mean, what should these chaps be looking for in their theories? Because it is possible they're a bit sidetracked in theories, isn't it? I mean, what, what, what should we be looking for that would help us get past this? Is, is, is the swamp going to help, or do we need other things? The problem is that when we're talking about evidence for the multiverse, again, we're usually talking about the cosmic microwave background and different camps of physicists saying, oh, that blip means it's another universe. No, no, that blip means right, these microscopic variations in temperature and density. So there's an interpretation problem um, with respect to what the data is actually saying. So I think that the more productive way to think about it would be to get back to the question that's motivating the scientific quest in the first place. Like, what are you trying to answer? Right? Are you trying to answer why is our universe the way it is? Right? Then you're going to be opening one set of questions. Are you trying to ask, ask what's the probability that a universe like ours would? Um, but I think you need to start at that level of question um, before you ask what the, because otherwise you've just got different people competing about what the evidence, the same evidence seems to be saying in different ways. So I, I want to ask instead what it is it, that's motivating the question in the first place. And I would love to see phys physicists get clear about what the motivation is that's designing the experiments or designing the mathematical hypotheses. Well, handily, we have a couple of things. I know, it's so, delightful. So, Cumran, um, what is it that you're trying to answer? And, uh, and is it, are the theories perhaps telling us that maybe the universe isn't quite the way we thought it was. So what, uh, what is it that we want to explain? Well, we have a beautiful model called the standard model of physics. John has worked quite a bit on, on related topics. And it's one of the amazing uh, I mean, uh, achievements, I would say, of theoretical physics in the past few decades to try to come up with a comprehensive model describing essentially all the forces we know in terms of electricity, magnetism, weak and strong forces combined together in a beautiful framework called the standard model and works beautifully and the experiments in CERN verify all details of it seem to be beautifully worked so far. But what is strange about the beautiful as it is, is that it's a very specific structure. You choose particular math pieces like a group and this and that and particular 
particles which have basic charges of specific types, you put them together, it works the way our universe seems to work. But it looks a little random if you, if you just look at it just from the viewpoint of why did you choose that group? Why that charge? Why not this? Why not that? Many of them would have been perfectly fine as the theory looks. So you, know, you can write the standard model for a different, slightly different model, looks perfectly okay. So as theorists, we're not satisfied with just saying, oh, we can describe our universe. It looks like, you know, just taking a, you know, drawing and say, okay, I see this way, fine, it looks good. This is our, this is our universe, this drawing. But we could have done a different drawing. That looked perfectly fine too. Why aren't we having that drawing? That's not satisfactory to theorists who say, sorry, I just can't draw our universe. This is the way it looks and don't ask me any further. We would like to understand why. Why is it that we have this specific one? Or could there have been other ones? Are we just one of the possibilities? So may, a lot of the things that theoretical physicists want to understand is the notion of naturalness. Why are we, is our universe natural? Could we have other universes which are like ours? What, what puts us in this universe as opposed to the other? Is it probabilistic, as, as some people say, or is it not probabilistic? What is, what is going on? That, so that's a very natural, well-motivated question, and it's not new to string theory. It has been going on for many decades in the theoretical physics before string theory to try to explain our particular universe, and there would be possible theoretically consistent-looking theory. Well, it's been going on since Giordano Bruno, and they burned him at well, stake. Right. So. <laughs> and can I just say really, really quickly that I think that that string of why questions is yeah. what pushes this kind of physics into the realm of what's known as metaphysics, like that particular branch yeah. of philosophy. That's a philosophical question. Why is it this way and not other way? Yeah. There are plenty of physicists who don't care. They're like, what? Why? Let me just use the constants we have. But that why is part of what pushes the boundaries of science, I think, into something else. And Q. John. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a why person, but no, that's, that's a job for the theology department. <laughs> there you so go. so <laughs> I, I think physicists do the what, how, when, where, but, but, but not the why. Okay. Right. Uh, but, but, but you're asking, you know, what, what are the questions that we are, are asking or should be asking? And so our current you know, approach to that problem is the standard model. And then there's problems behind that, as Kumran mentioned. Uh, where do we come from? You know, the Big Bang, uh, that is something that we can observe with our experiments. I think we can make potentially some progress in addressing that question. Uh, where are we going? Well, that was actually what we were debating with uh, Krumlman a moment ago. Now, is the universe going to continue to accelerate its expansion or will the amount of energy in empty space you know, change at some point and, and, and the picture change? As I always say, those are the three reasons why I come into work every day. <laughs> Is it fair to say that you're more happy with some of those constants just being the way they are? That, you know, the, the coefficient of expansion is, is just that way, whereas you say, I, it irritates you, you say, but why, there has to be a deeper reason. Is that a fair distinction between the two tribes well, I, of physics? Here? I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm terribly comfortable with it. I, I, I guess as a physicist, I, I'm opportunistic. I, I, I like thinking about working on problems where I think we can make some progress at this moment in time. So I, I agree it's incredibly important to understand why, for example, the electron has the mass that it does. But, but right at the moment, I don't see any promising uh, ways to attack that problem. So, so I put it on one side and work on something where I think we can make more progress uh, right. at this point in time. Mary Jane, for two of you, how comfortable do you feel about it when the, the theoreticians and the mathematicians mm -hmm. say, it, the mathematics is saying this, so we think it's going to be true. And you know, there's a great track record of that being true, but there's still that sense of, because your equation looks elegant, I should believe it, whereas there's not a single thing I can measure. Is that 
Is that metaphysics, I, physics, or yeah, theology? I just, just want to ask what true means, right? Um, mm. That it can be something can be mathematically true um, and exist in the realm of ideas without existing in the physical realm, yes. right? Um, this is so Plato, for example, <laughs> would yes. say this, right? That what's really real exists I in would some say that too, yes. yeah exists in some huh? ideal yeah. mathematical like, realm, like the infinity many universes minus one. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> right, right. So it exists in some ideal mathematical realm, um, but and then and then our physical universe is a kind of imperfect uh, instantiation of one of those possibilities, right? But somebody like Max Tegmark, for example, yes. would say that he's such a hyperplatonist that that uh, that mathematical ideal reality corresponds to physical reality out there somewhere. And I would say this is, uh, Alfred North Whitehead called this the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. The yeah. idea that anything that's possible has to actually be actual. Um, so I think we have to ask about the status, not to be like the philosophy guy in the room, we have to ask about the status of what real means when we say that it's real, right? Something can be mathematically real without being like out there next to it. Well, I mean, that's, that's a problem with not just the, the many worlds, but uh, you know, the many worlds of interpretation of quantum of mechanics. Uh, they, they, they pop up everywhere. I mean, if you thought that there's yeah. a 10 to the infinity actual universes, if all of them have quantum mechanics, each one of them is shedding copies of itself at a phenomenal rate, which even makes infinity look small. So, you know, we're having trouble explaining one universe and then leave it to the physicists. We've now got infinity raised to the infinity of universes, and that's the solution. So, <laughs> I think that the idea that we live in a particular universe is not that, right? We live in one. So, yeah, when you I say, when so, you so say let's that, understand that. When we certainly, we certainly, we certainly, all physicists, I think, are, are on, on board with understanding that. If that is enough for us, I would say some people might find it sufficient. Some people might be resigned to say that's all we can do or try to do. Some people might not be happy with that status, and I'm among those that I don't find that a satisfactory stage. And we, I don't think we are at a stage where we cannot even think about alternatives. We are. We have made quite a bit of progress, and. String theory has actually not only shed light about standard model and related models, it actually taught a lot more that we were not expecting. Principles of holography, aspects of black holes, different this, that. There are too many connections with the thing that we expect to be true in the standard model for the string theory not to be relevant for our universe. Yeah. Therefore, given that, it would be a shame not to study its consequences. And that's what we are doing. It is not to say we don't understand everything. This idea that we are God, we are trying, no way. We are, we are, we don't even put ourselves in that. We are very limited understanding of this subject. String theory is a work in progress with many, perhaps, centuries to go. It is not like, oh yeah, in two years I'm going to be done with this, I'm going to move on. No. But to say, you know, we are, it's, you know, it's too difficult, let's just, let's just do some simple thing for now and let's not worry about it. I think that's not, that's not what human beings do. I think that's not what theoretical physicists do. That's not ambition do, does. But to try to overestimate what we can do is incorrect either. So we take little steps, but we are making steps. It's not fair to think that we're just not making any steps, and it's not fair to say we are claiming we have understood it all. That's, those are exaggerations on both parts. We are making gradual steps. It may take many years, perhaps centuries, but to stop and not to advance there, I think, is not, is not good for, our, for humanity. Can it, there's something that the two of you raised which is kind of lurking there, this idea of a realm of ideas. And when you raise the, the, the Plato, um, that's very interesting that that's happening now. I mean, because 20 years ago, you would have been cast out of the tent for, for talking about it. When you say there's a, a realm of ideas and that this is what guides things, are you meaning that in a poetic sense or are you suggesting that there is 
a non-physical reality and the things in that reality are what makes the physical reality do what it does. Because that's an immense question. The question is what do you mean by physical reality? Do you mean the universe that I'm seeing right now, this cup glass with atoms that, and so on? That's if you're what talking I mean. about that, yes. that, and that could be one of the universes we're talking about. We're talking about this particular one, yes. then that's this one. If you're talking about the would-be possible universes that may exist and how do we access it and so on, that's a different question. So we are, two, we are asking two different questions. So part of what she was saying depends on what you mean by reality. If you mean reality of our universe, that's just one. By definition, there's one universe. Yes. But if you're asking about would-be universes or whether there was any interaction or could there be any interaction with universes, that's a different question. So in, in other words, there is, there is a, there's a debate of what you actually mean by that word reality. So we can discuss it. But that's not well-defined enough for me to comment. Reality is not well enough defined. No, her, her notion of reality is not well defined for me to comment. <laughs> okay. Yes, she has to comment. What what does she exactly mean by reality? I can I can then answer what, what I what I, I would think that string theory may or may not offer about that definition. I'm not saying it's wrong or right. I just don't know exactly what she means by by the word the, the reality that she uses. Can you help? Um, I don't know. No, I was <laughs> I was I was actually just trying to to say that we should distinguish between mathematical reality, which doesn't necessarily impose the existence of, say, 10 to the 500 physical universes out there on us, right, um, versus physical reality, right? So th th I was just asking that we make that distinction, which I think Kamran is working within. I actually think we agree completely on that. Well, that's disappointing. Even and that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sad to tell you, is it. Could I ask you to help me thank our speakers? Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Cumran Vaffer, MJ Rubenstein, and John Ellis. Now you've listened to the podcast, why not head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd like to hear more on this topic, then also give a listen to episode 116 on the astrophysics behind the multiverse with Catherine Haymans in The Mysteries of the Multiverse. And of course, please do tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.